Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. Okay, so what makes for a good wine label? On its most basic level, packaging should tell you something about the wine, right? Like, the most straightforward wine labels will say something about the grape, the region, probably the name of the winery. But there's been a movement over the past decade toward more abstract labels and bottling. And this changing aesthetic, like this movement towards a more artistic label, kind of runs parallel to the growth of natural wine in the marketplace. There's lots of iconic examples from a long time ago, like Dagano or Bibi Greitz. And there's also more modern wineries like Hirotake Oka or Le Lune or Sotange. So... Today, I want to dig into all that, so we're going to chat with Chris Kelly about the aesthetics of natural wines packaging. Chris runs Vintel, an Austin-based design company that focuses on low intervention. Um, He's helped create labels for a lot of different wineries and importers, so I wanted to hear how he synthesizes art, hospitality, and marketing. He's an amazing guy, um, a good friend. We actually traveled to the Loire together, so I'm really excited to hear what he has to say. We'll just jump right in. I'm good, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'm trying to think. I got a run in this morning. The weather is, it was below 80 when I started my run in the morning, so I couldn't complain. The day below 80 is pretty magical. Sounds like an an excellent day. (laughs) Yeah. What's been going on with you? Um, Just back at it, man. Um, Had a nice little uh, vacation. And uh, as you know, we ended up having a small wedding ceremony. So that was fun. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, for listeners, uh, Chris just got married to friend of the pod, Rania in Michigan, right? Yeah, Northern Michigan. It was beautiful. And uh, limited family was there based on the situation at hand. But yeah. Uh, yeah, man, it was really fun. When um, did you get back? Uh, we got back two weeks ago. So yeah, we had a had a good, you know, couple weeks up there. What wine did you uh, drink at the ceremony? What what bottle did you pop? We had a few. Um, we had uh, Christian Beaner's uh, Sylvaner and a Magnum that we picked up in Chicago, and uh, we had the the Demore uh, Magnum of Demore, which is pretty wow. pretty dope. Magnums are the way to show that you care. It's a way to party. Yeah. We definitely partied. We definitely tried to show that we. That we cared. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Nice to see you grew a mustache as well. I know in solidarity. I feel like, you know, Adam over at Lolo, he's not the only one anymore. He's got to watch out. You got a mustache crew going. The, the the face masks, I think, aid that happening more readily. Yeah, there's the ability to have a little more creativity with your facial hair. or There's more experimentation. You know, you can do whatever you want under that mask. Which is which is kind of terrifying, right? Yeah, the, the buzzer hasn't gotten much use. <laughs> uh, the last few months against Ronnie's wishes, I'm sure. Oh man. Well, did you, I mean, for the wedding itself, did you go mustache? Did you go full beard? What was, I went, I was, I was moustached. Wow. Uh, grandma later told me that she was disappointed, <laughs> uh, which was, which was, which was heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. That's not what you want to hear from grandma. No, it was like, how oh, we could have talked about other things, but you chose to comment on my mustache okay she's a straight shooter she's gonna let you know how she feels absolutely she is um that's one of the many things i love about her (laughs) (laughs) so what'd you end up popping i ended up going with the demore after all that i the new vintage of the aligote nice 
Yeah, you know, I I opened the Bourgogne, just Bourgogne Blanc, um, the Normale, and it was it was so electric. It was so good. So I was interested to see how the Aligote was showing. It's definitely like a little more malic, uh, yeah. but but still super fun. What are you What are you drinking right now? Um, I was kind of shameless and popped a wine that I worked on, Chad and Breeze stocks. Getting high on your own supply. I love Getting it. Getting high on my own juice. Yeah. Hey, I had to pay for this juice, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's a new project. Chad Stock with Omero and his wife, Bree. Uh, she's an MW from Australia, and they collaborated on this new project called Constant Crush. And this is their subsidiary label called Limited Edition. And the challenge was uh, Chad ended up wanting some sort of like textural element, and that included Braille. So the label is actually like this embossed Braille. Hmm. But it's by no means is it would it be legal because it's, you know, it's diagonal and there's like not enough spacing to actually read it. But I'm actually really curious to, to see if uh, someone is able to read it that can read Braille. My guess is that unfortunately they might not be able to. But did, did he explain why Braille was something he wanted to incorporate into his label? Did he just like the feel and look of it or? Yeah. So it was kind of a culmination of wanting a puzzle limited edition it's not it's sort of this pun on wines that we drink and you know we're we're drawn to like limited wines and so the the pun in the name was kind of implying uh some decoding and so he wanted something that was a little bit more mysterious and we came up with braille as as a as an idea and it stuck and the, the printer that ended up printing it was actually in canada and they were psyched on the project and just decided to emboss it um, to save money because actually printing Braille is, you know, a little bit expensive mm -hmm. um, when it comes down to producing thousands of, of labels, it, it adds up. And Chad's labels have always been so unique, especially under like the Minimus label specifically. Chad, right, yeah. was making wine under a lot of different kind of projects. He had Omero, which I think was a little more consistent from year to year. I think he's mm -hmm. mostly sourced, you know, the Pinot from the same places every year and the labels all kind of looked the same, mm -hmm. you know, whereas with Minimus, if I remember correctly, every label for every wine was very different and he rarely made the exact same wine from one year to the next. Yeah. You know, there were a lot of like one-off projects. I think his most maybe infamous label was the one that said, I am a wine with VA I'm okay with that. I'm enlightened. I think that was it, right? It was, yeah. He did the illegal rosé as well, which mm -hmm. was kind of a throwing shade on the EU um, and their regulations about rosé. So, yeah, I've I've always appreciated Chad, and um, I appreciate a lot of Oregon winemakers in general that are stepping outside of the the confines of, of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Gamay and and you know doing those other 18 varietals that grow well there that are kind of outside of a lot of Eola appellations and things like that. But that's entirely what their new project is. They're doing like Chenin Blanc and um, um, Cab Franc from you know, field blends, um, co-fermentations, things like that. Mm. Um, this is a, this is a Grenache Rosé, which is unusual that it, you know, is hundred percent Grenache. So it, we had actually some issues with the labeling because we weren't, because there's some new uh, appellation laws in Oregon, because they're so strict, Grenache is one of those grapes that's outside of a lot of the appellation laws. So um, hmm. you can't really, we couldn't really say, I, I think we couldn't say like 
Grenache. It just says Grenache whole cluster rosé on the label. That's kooky. Um, can't list a percentage on there. Can't list a percentage. I don't think, but Oregon definitely has some some of the most stringent policies in terms of labeling, which is good. Yeah. But it also challenges producers that are, you know, like Chad and Bree that are kind of outside of the confines. And there's no UPC code on there. So is it all wine club? Is it all, is he distributing that in Texas right now? Or did, did you get it through a wine club? As far as I know, they are going to be available in Texas um, through David Mayfield. I think he agreed to, to pick some up. And, you know, as you know, right now is at a difficult time, um, not only because of COVID, but because of the temperature and because of the cha- vintage changes and promises made back in the spring before we, all this went down. And so it's, it's a very, very tricky uh, time of year for uh, for label design as a business, but as, as an importer. And are the tariffs in any way affecting the way you're designing labels? I mean, obviously, wine's coming out of the EU right now. There's a lot of kind of financial pressures there just because yeah. of that 25% tariff. But has any of that altered the aesthetics of the labels that you're creating other than just trying to make them as cost effective as possible? I'm, I'm smiling because I have a few examples and I'm... I'm trying to be fair to to clients, but they 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 are very cognizant of that, and I think there's not really a desperation, but definitely more of a push to make labels pop. I hear this word a lot, like I want to make the label pop, which is <laughs> such a funny um, you know adage to wine because wine labels inherently are designed to pop, but everyone has kind of a different perception of what pop is, so. Mm. You take like the Vin de France example, a lot of those labels are hand-drawn and they're very sketchy and that's fun and that, that caters to a specific audience, but certain importers are like, shit, I need to do something like that. I want to do a Vin de France and with the 25% tariff, now this wine really has to sell. Um, so I, I might remove some of the original font and let's do something more fresh. So I am yeah. seeing that a lot actually. Hmm. On, on two two projects I worked on this last year, that was a definite discussion that was had, and I uh, it brought a lot to the table because there was like this extra pressure to make a label that satiated it being potentially more expensive than what it originally w- was going to cost, right? So not only was I tasked with making this label, you know, quote unquote pop, but okay the placebo of this wine costing more than it potentially should changes sort of the aesthetic idea of a label. How can we connote value in this label? How can we make this wine seem like it deserves that extra 25% in a way? Yeah. It's crazy. It is crazy. I mean, of course. It's crazy that that's the conversation we have to have right now because of some fucking baloney tariff, you know? It is a lot of baloney. And baloney is taxed too. (laughs) Baloney is taxed, yeah. Well, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, um, you are Chris, you co-founded Vintel, a mm-hmm. wine consulting firm based out of Austin, and your focus is branding and the aesthetics of label design. You help create wine labels, you help create a, a visual representation of a winery's philosophy. And, you know, that's what I kind of wanted to talk to you about today. Maybe like a, I'm trying to think of a good starting off point for us, but I mean, you got into art before you got into wine in the first place, right? I did. Yeah. Um, it was early on in my life that I, I really took to, to visual art and to, to painting specifically and drawing and painting. And um, 
my my parents thought that I was kind of nuts because I was always um, I always wanted to do that in school and I was always painting my face and always you know doing things that I you know outside of the the, the art time <laughs> you know curriculum I was d- doing extracurricular art mm-hmm. um, and that that led to some really good formative years I think and retrospectively I think that's really helped more than anything else, more than college or more than working in restaurants was those, those times working with, um, you know, on small scale, working on small canvases, drawing, painting, um, taking large ideas and, and coalescing them into something abstract. Um, I love doing that as a kid. And I think that that playfulness really, really helps, um, my design approach now. But yeah, restaurants too, of course. I mean, um, you know, I was thinking of some good examples and oddly one of the, some of the best advice I think I got, however, inadvertently was from Anthony Bourdain. Uh, he said in one of his, in his episodes, I think it was in 2008, 2009, um, he said he wants a 10 second sommelier. And I thought that that was so profound because it really made me think about all the extraneous stuff that we say as wine professionals, table side, or even in the store, I've worked in a lot of retail settings and wine bars as well, where I'll catch myself rambling about the soil type, the producer's dog or whatever, these extraneous tidbits that are in a lot of ways, just like extra spice, you know, it's like too much flavor and spice. And Bourdain said it really well, and I eventually relayed that to the staff at the restaurant I worked at, where I was like, look, if if you're not sure what to say, just don't say it, and let the let the, the label speak for itself, and let the wine speak for itself, and if you talk to importers, they might tell you to let the wine speak for itself first. I'm, I've had that conversation with a few importers, you know, it's not even a it's not even a chicken before the egg conversation. It's really like, it is a holistic package. The wine has to taste good to whoever's tasting it. And it has to appeal to them aesthetically. And when those two things are parallel, it's a really, it's a knockout. So when I started seeing labels that, that did that, I think that that really piqued my interest in, in going full tilt with label design. So kind of when you went full tilt into label design at that time, you were working at Lenoir, right? I was, yeah. So when you think back to when you were at Lenoir, were there any labels that really, to use a word you said earlier, popped, like that mm-hmm. just always resonated with guests mm-hmm. at the restaurant? Yeah. And price point was important too, but for, for an Austin crowd, I think the aesthetics were equally as important. And when wine was on display, you know, the wines that come to mind are in like 2013, 2014 are like our Pepe, Okoda barrels, the St. Reynolds parish wine, um, Andy Young's wines, so many wines actually. And, uh, you know, oftentimes those were placed because I knew that the staff would get behind them too. The staff in restaurants, the staff has to be behind the wines that are chosen, mm-hmm. um, or tasted. And when I did wine, when I did, um, wine classes for the Lenoir staff, it was, they saw a new label and they were like super pumped to try the wine. And then if the Mm -hmm. wine was spoke to them, I knew the wine would sell really well. So the staff is really important. And that got me thinking about really my 
my past as as a walking you know peggy olsen or don draper in a restaurant like mm-hmm. that's what that's what servers and that's what sommeliers are we're salespeople, and when you have a great product that certainly helps a great food or great special a great chef behind the food definitely helps but overall packaging and presentation is so so important mm-hmm. and i learned that over eight years um largely at Lenoir, but some wine bars I worked at in, in retail settings as well, where if a wine, you, you didn't have, have the opportunity to taste the wine, then the label had to be really killer and had to speak to what you were saying about the wine. And you're, it ha- would have to match your enth- enthusiasm. And, uh, you know, millennials are enthusiastic. <laughs> so you, you, in a way, you have to match that as well. When you look at a label, you immediately start to categorize it, you know, based on either the way the label was printed, the, the, the type of label that it is. Are there certain kind of like techniques to label design or certain aesthetics that you associate with either certain regions or certain styles of winemaking or certain things that you think are tools in your kind of toolbox as a designer that you use to get that point across? There definitely is. There are a lot of producers that have an aesthetic when you just taste their wine and to have the label absent in your mind when you taste the wine is really, really crucial when you're starting to rebrand a project. That's That's my personal goal is to translate the intention of a winemaker best through the label. And more often than not, the problem is convincing the winemaker that they need to change their label because of the region that they're in. And it sits comfortably on the shelf with sans, other Sanceres, for instance, or other classic regions that have maybe these appended regions like in Burgundy, for instance, or German labels. You know, those, those are really, really difficult regions to tackle for label design because there's an aesthetic that is from the 13th century, you know, like mm-hmm. the monks in Burgundy, for instance, you know, had an aesthetic and that was very, you know, me Tarzan, you Jane, like this is a very black and white depiction of what is, <laughs> what is real. There was nothing abstract. Yeah. And to me that translated in text. Now we see these, you know, these very blocky Gothic texts that have, that have been, not only the the brand but the logo for the winery for so many years and going after those wineries is uh is not really my my thing i think it's kind of a a waste of a waste of time because those wines have a an aesthetic unto themselves that you know you can't really reverse but if you go to a newer region like azile redu or a sub-region in terrain in the loire valley outside of some of these more I call them blockbuster regions, then you'll have the opportunity to work with producers that are also interested in their aesthetic. And it, it might be a new aesthetic, which is a perfect opportunity to, to say, look, wh- where do you want to go with this project? You know, what's your audience? How do you see this wine doing in a market? And that's a great opportunity. And do you think part of that's maybe because, you know, in those more established blockbuster regions, like that is the word on the label that sells the wine. Like the wine law has been built around this idea that this particular Ludi in France within this larger appellation, that has been codified by monks hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So you need to have that on the label because that is what your whole selling point is, right? But in mm-hmm. these other regions that you're talking about, you know, kind of like 
the outskirts of different parts of the Loire, right? Yeah. Or the Cote Catalan, that like really fun mountainous region between Spain and France. Like that's where there's a lot of really exciting risk-taking winemakers that don't really need a region or a vineyard site or parcel listing on their bottle to really sell it, to sell what they're doing. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, they're taking a risk. Um, they're also... Not always, but generally they're younger. They have a different aesthetic as is, but they're making wines that are insanely expressive and aren't easily categorized, which makes a label that much more fun because, you know, the, the, the label can be more artistic and can have more expression and you can kind of oculate some of those extraneous words and put them maybe on the back or the side and seeing that a lot in the natural wine world where you have kind of these wrap label ideas. Um, and a wrap label, just for people that are listening, that's just one continuous piece that fits on the front of the bottle, but wraps around to the other side, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it essentially is allowing the art piece to be the centerpiece, um, allowing the, the artwork to be focal. So if it's sitting on the shelf retail, you know, other bottles are around it. All you're seeing is the label artwork and, some of my favorite labels are where the producer just ultimately decides to remove all of the branding ideas, put them elsewhere and let the artwork showcase itself. And that has its own unique presence, especially in retail. But as I've argued with some importers, it's equally important in restaurant settings mm -hmm. because you are showing those bottles. And in that 10 seconds that you have, the bottle has to be attractive because you're buying it for your friends and you want them to think that you have great tastes and this bottle is going to be the hearth on the table for the next 45 minutes or I guess that's a slow drinker but like <laughs> the next 30 minutes right yeah so that's really important and kind of goes back to the Vin de France thing Vin, you know the the table wine element but um in my experience that's because of of costs producers I think that we're referencing in these regions outside of major regions are there because the land is cheaper and they're either renting property or you know, buying fruit from other producers and they're stationed maybe even in a trailer adjacent to the to the winery or to the the vineyard that they're source, sourcing the fruit from so they're already at this artistic level of of expression that that more conventional larger wineries are absent um, where they would hire somebody like me hopefully <laughs> to, to to implement that vision I think the region, the Catalan region you mentioned is, is a great example. I mean, you see that a lot in Penedès outside of Barcelona. Um, you see that, of course, in, in outside of Banyuls and some of these regions that, you know, if you showed a, um, your, your, your parents uh, wine from Banyuls, they would immediately say, I don't want to drink sweet wine. But you're like, well, there's a lot of producers outside of Banyuls that are making mm -hmm. uh, dry Grenache and, you know, Grenache Blanc and things like that. Um, and if you look at those labels, those really, those labels in particular, really, really speak to a certain demographic, um, more of a millennial marketplace. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that for better or worse, like is a stereotype, right, of the natural wine movement. When so many people try and describe what natural wine is, they just tend to throw out, you know, characteristics of natural wine, whether that's like well, the natural wine is the one that's, you know, opaque in color. Maybe it's a little cloudy. Maybe there's sediment, you know, maybe it's the one with a like, you know, really fun label. You take most millennials, you put them into a 
you know, the Whole Foods on Lamar, the one that you have in Austin, right? They can yeah. probably pick out which ones maybe are a little more minimal intervention than the other, right? Yeah, it's, it's designated in a way. And I think another unique challenge that that I take on is to kind of debunk that. I, I want classic wines to have an opportunity as well. Um, of course, I'm a huge advocate for low intervention wines with, with fun poppy labels, but I also, um, I'm seeing the change happen slightly and I'm seeing the pushback as well. Um, you, you mentioned whole foods and, you know, as a retail setting, the opportunity doesn't exist in those settings to always explain, you know, why this wine tastes this way, unless it's in a clear bottle and has, you know, you know, is, is, is blatantly an orange wine um, and yeah. sold as an orange wine or something, um, which you do see quite a bit of, but that opportunity is, is really more of a, um, you know, the clerk's job or whoever is behind the counter. Um, so I do see importers make that argument quite a bit. Like this wine is going to be for a retail setting or this wine is going to be for a wholesale uh, restaurant setting. Hmm. Um, and my argument is that they both need to work. Uh, there's a syzygy that needs to exist between retail and a restaurant because people in a restaurant are going to go buy that wine. So why would you have a different label in retail? It makes absolutely no sense. I'm pretty adamant about that. <laughs> well, also, I think that that like chasm between retail or on-premise and off-premise is slowly, you know, getting smaller and smaller, right? You've got more and more bottle shops slash wine bar combos mm -hmm. that are going on. I mean, you've got Lolo in Austin, we've got Light Years and Venology and Montrose Cheese and Wine here in Houston. And really every major city has that combination at this point. Um, and I think that, you know, as establishments, you know, try and minimize cost, having the bottles on display just makes it that much easier. I mean, you talked about being a 10 second Psalm. I mean, it's not just for the guest benefit, you know, that you're not droning on and on. Right. But it's also the idea that you as a sommelier have somewhere else you got to be. You can't mm -hmm. be at every single table in your restaurant for 10, 15 minutes waxing poetic about the Cocker Spaniel at the winery's house. Right. Dude, gotta... so it's like still have server nightmares about mm -hmm. that shit. Yeah. It's, you know, it's real. Mm -hmm. Um, Nobody, I don't think anybody is asking you for that information, which yeah. is the part that always gets me, you know, the, the, the Anthony Bourdain model comes from, you know, kind of an angry chef. Maybe I don't care about wine perspective, but I think there's a lot of validity in how he, how he viewed wine and food and that, you know, wine is, is enhancing food. But do I need to hear the whole backstory? Let me experience it for myself. Mm -hmm. That's something that I think about a lot with label design is that it's kind of a two-part project. You have, you're satiating your client, you're satiating this new design, and you're trying to express what the wine is to them. But you're also painting a picture in a consumer's mind about what a wine is or isn't. And that takes a lot of time and thought. Um, some of the best labels to me translate that. Um, and maybe they do cater to millennials, but I'd argue that, you know, if you brought those wines to the Thanksgiving table, you would see more people pick those wines up. 
and those would be the ones that disappear the fastest. I've I've tested those wines on on family and random people, and uh, you know, almost always are the are they the wines that people pick up first and that talk about, and that's the conversation that I like to like to have. Do you think that there's any sort of translation that needs to go on there with you as the designer kind of communicating what you've experienced having worked in a restaurant setting with a lot of these producers. Now I know that you work with some here in the States, but you also have clients in, you know, Spain, Italy, France. Um, Is there any sort of like conversation that needs to be had about the aesthetic consumption of American audiences for those particular producers or do you find that it's kind of a universal language? I think that's a great question. Um, it's a great question because it's it is it's something I think about a lot. And there's like a filter that I create, like you know, with a new client, where say, what is your target audience? And oftentimes that's difficult to to describe. You know, like this wine might not be doing well because the label changed and it's still on 750, and people are looking at an older vintage or older label. You know. Or, um, you know, I, I want this wine to do better in the States. I want it to do better in Chicago or New York or uh, San Francisco or Austin. And I think that when people, producers come and visit Austin, they see what wines people are drinking. And being more of a millennial city, you see that. And you see cooler wines, you know, cooler labels being on tables. Whereas 10 years ago, you know, it was kind of more of the, the antiquated labels that were predominantly on tables. So yeah, I think, I think producers are definitely thinking about that. Importers are, are especially thinking about that now, you know, we've been talking a lot about restaurants, but I think what we haven't talked about is what's happening now. And there is this change in label design that I've seen and I've been hired to, to, to create, and that's to appeal more online. Um, which is a, a two dimensional platform, right? You don't have the ability to go into the store, and pick up that that wrap label that we talked about and t- turn it around and see all those hidden details. You have uh, an online merchant that's taking a picture of the wine and more often than not, the labels that really stand out are going to sell the fastest because it's it's very, very simple. It's because that's a primitive instinct. You know, we're going to pick the ripest looking fruit and color has a lot to do with that, but um, visual texture and contrast and how a label is framed, uh, the, the type of picture that it was, you know, who took the picture, all of those things have a lot to do with how a wine sells online. And I can attest from several online stores that I'm familiar with or from, from Lolo where I uh, managed before all this went down, the, the wines that sold the fastest had the best labels. And best is subjective, but um, those were the labels that people wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, if you're going to spend an extra $10 on a bottle, you know, say your cap is you know, usually under 30, it's going to take a little bit more from the label to say, you know, I'm worth spending $40 over. You know, um, a wine that immediately comes to my mind when you're saying that, right? Um, is like Matthew Barrett's Petite Ores, right? Totally. Like a super yeah. delicious wine, right? Um, it's Cote de Rhone, 
uh, just Syrah. It's carbonic. It's just fresh, easy drinking. But the average consumer, they're not going to remember things like Syrah or Cote d'Iron. Like those are words that resonate with us because we've had, you know, years and years to like study these things. But unless someone is a really avid drinker or they like take notes on what they consume, which most consumers don't do that, right? We would just get people coming in. They said, last time I came in, I had a really good red wine. It, it tasted great. And it had a teddy bear on the label. And it was like, great, cool. I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, prior to all of this, you were talking about those antiquated labels. You know, there's the running joke. I think it's actually a New Yorker cartoon where someone is saying, oh, I had this one red wine. It was great. It tasted great. Which one was it? Right? Right. And now at least there's some other way for that consumer that may not have the vocabulary of appellations or, you know, regions or producers to remember that one. Sure. Yeah. That's a great example. Of the, you know, it's known as the teddy bear wine when I worked at Lenoir. Um, and some people are like, I don't want to sell this stupid teddy bear wine anymore. So, you know, it goes both ways. Yeah. Like, people you will remember a wine but if everyone had like teddy bears or you know translu translucent labels or like shiny you know texts um you know matthew beret's uh labels are they have this um this reflective paper in the text uh which is really great it has a lot of effect um and and photographs really well mm -hmm. but if every like every fucking label was like that you know, we would create this sea of mediocrity as well, visually. So I think it works, you know, very, very selectively. And I'm seeing more and more of that kind of creative Vin de France um, kind of sketchy label, you know, like stuff like this. Um, I'm holding up a, a bottle that um, is a client of mine, so I'm not going to say like what exactly it is, but it's, mm -hmm. a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a label that is hand-drawn and it's... Um, you know, it's, it's fun. It really pops. But if every single bottle looked like that in the grocery store, you would have to spend an enormous amount of time, you know, asking questions or, you know, Googling it or whatever. And uniqueness is something that, you know, is in the eye of the beholder generally. But if I can control that a little bit more, I would have bottled, you know, I would try to figure out where the bottle is really present. One thing that I'm curious about just from like a purely logistical standpoint is when you're designing labels, whether they're here in the US or for French or Spanish or Italian wineries, is there any sort of like legal parameter that you have to stick within? I know you were saying that in Oregon with Chad's wines, you couldn't necessarily list the exact percentage of Grenache in that wine. Um, but are there wines coming out of Europe where you have to stick to certain types of fonts or you have to stick to certain bits of information, either on a front label versus a back label? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. What's the consideration yeah, there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in, in the EU, there's, there's definitely requirements. Um, you know, you often have to put the, the pregnant, the, you know, the no pregnant drinking symbol, which is like frowned upon in the States for whatever reason. Uh, you know, instead of, you just have the government warning in the States, yeah. whereas in Europe, you don't have that government government warning and which takes up a fucking ton of space, by the way, like, <laughs> as a designer, if you're like, you're doing a label and it's, you know, like a hundred or like 80 millimeters by 80 millimeters, it's like this square label on the front label. And you're supposed to put all that stuff on the side mm -hmm. and abide by the legal text sizes. Um, it becomes really, really challenging. So 
you know, in like my naive days of, of label design, I would be super pumped on this new label and I would send it off and they're like, um, yeah, the, the text is like way bigger than two millimeters or, or way smaller than two millimeters rather. And, you know, we got to redo the label and it's like, fuck, you know, I like spent so much time on that. <laughs> um, but generally that's something that I'll, I will research right away. Um, just to kind of get ahead of the curve. Um, certain wineries I've worked with have lawyers that do that because the label laws change so frequently. And if they're under a crunch to like get uh, something, you know, TTB approved, um, you know, they're paying that $25 fee for that label to get approved. They don't want to wait any longer. And it might already take, you know, two to four months. Um, you know, COVID has had a lot to do with that and delaying uh, the approval rates. Um, so all of those things are, are really crucial when you're designing a label. It's not like, you know, I can make like some abstract painting on my floor and then just slap it on a label and call it a day. Um, there's a lot of legal jargon that goes into it, unfortunately. And beyond the utilitarian side of things like scaling font to, you know, be of a certain size, are there certain images that work better? Because labels at their biggest are maybe all of like, four inches in height, right? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe all of like three or four inches wide, if you have a wrap label, you know, mm -hmm. um, does that affect kind of the type of imagery, the, you know, the iconography of what you're putting there? Yeah, it really does. Um, you know, I, I like taking paintings or photographs and kind of recreating them visually. And the first thing I have to figure out is how to do that spatially on a really small surface with curvature, you know, you're thinking about the bottle curvature and sitting on a shelf, like, you know, you're, you're not going to see, you know, the five o'clock of the label, if you're walking up to it, and if that's like the most focal thing in the label, then you kind of screwed yourself over. So it's, it's really a working of this, like dynamic working of shapes and sizes and, and colors and textures. Mm -hmm. Um, which is really, really important. You know, if you, if you pick up some of your favorite labels, um, check them out, you know, look at the proportions and, you know, you can measure them if you have like a wrap measure or you can just, what I do usually is just, you know, if I'm in a hurry, is just like use paper and wrap it around the label and you can measure it that way with a ruler later. Yeah. I mean, the label size ultimately comes down to the printer that the winery's chosen to use and what they can do. Um, print yeah. dyes are expensive. Um, they're like $400, you know, a label to change often. And, you know, if you're changing a whole line of labels, it, it might make sense, but oftentimes, you know, you're kind of stuck with the, the previous guy's dimensions, which oftentimes are pretty arbitrary in the end. You're like, how is this like half of a millimeter? Like, I don't know. <laughs> so, so, uh, you've talked about certain types of labels that like resonate with you, but are there certain producers I know we talked about St. Reginald Parish. Andy's labels are fucking fantastic. They're bold. They're to the point. We talked about, um, you know, the Disco mm -hmm. Bear, the Teddy Bear labels. Um, but are there other producers that you think are just really killing it out there? Yeah, there are. Um, quite a few from from Italy uh, really caught my eye originally, like uh, Lacoste's labels. Um, they're a producer in Lazio, just south of Rome. And they're outside this volcanic lake that's kind of looks like Crater Lake in Oregon in a way. And their label translates that really, really well. Um, they're like two or three colors. So the printing cost is low and it translates the, the regionality visually. And it has, you know, the font is like handwritten. So it looks like 
personable and artistic. Um, the you know the colors of the labels like just simply change based on the sky like to, to correlate to the wine. I think that's really really brilliant. I don't know whoever that person is, but I'd love to meet them. Mm -hmm. Congratulate them on an awesome label. Yeah. Um, Lamidia also does great labels. Um, they recently just changed to darker glass for the rosé, which I'm kind of bummed about. But it also it used to be clear um, clear glass, and so when you you drank the wine, it sort of like added this this effect to uh, the label itself. Um, those, those labels are great. Mm -hmm. Um, Robino is another one that comes to mind. Um, he's, he's a producer in the Loire Valley that is, you know, really experimental, but very precise. And his labels are, are fucking nuts, right? He like takes pictures or, or small videos of, of cars going by these like rural French roads at night and then kind of manipulates them to look like, um, these sort of like eighties, uh, like screensaver vibe, you know, <laughs> aesthetic, which, uh, which really works, you know, it has a yeah. lot of expression and each label is different. And, um, he does that himself, which is great. I love that. Um, you know, we, we were talking about like classic producers. Um, Bruno Schuler comes to mind. Um, you know, he, he's a, a Riesling producer, um, you know, making a little bit more kind of like a little bit more skin contact, more, mm -hmm. you know, longer cold fermentations. Um, and his labels have kind of a hipper twist to them while kind of staying true to like this, um, you know, this like German Gothic font. Mm -hmm. um, when we were discussing the other day, you mentioned Ostertag in Alsace. I love um, those labels so much. Yeah, those are so sick. Um, his um, Andre's wife, Christine makes those labels or at least does the paintings for them. Mm -hmm. And each painting is representative of the particular vineyard that the wine's coming from. I think that's fucking great. Like yeah. that is a 10 second side table thing and it always sells well. Mm -hmm. um, I would so wish that, that more wineries would do stuff like that. It's very, very personable. And it also, uh, you know, it outshines a lot of other labels that it's next to on shelves. Yeah. Um, what about you, man? What like what are some wines that you have dug recently? Um, I'm trying to think of labels that have really resonated with me. You know, I think something that I really enjoyed w was my recent trip to Japan where, you know, I was drinking a lot of sake and the sake itself, like I had no frame of reference for what was on that label. There was beautiful Japanese calligraphy that I couldn't understand. We sometimes talk about how wine can feel like a foreign language to people that haven't like learned a lot about it. And that was a perfect kind of like um, analog to that, where I was yeah. in a place where literally every single word I had, I didn't know what it meant. You know, I didn't know whether what I was having was Honjozo, whether what I was having was, you know, Namazake. I had no frame of reference for any of it. I just had to go based on what things looked like. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think, uh, you know, something that I'm really curious about that's maybe a little different than what we've been talking about right now is this, you know, your your background in music. You know, that's not something that we talked about before, but you you studied music. Uh, that was kind of your academic focus for a long time. And it's been cool to see the way that you've incorporated that, you know, musical background into your wine career. I'm thinking specifically of a couple of events that you've hosted where it was like a music and wine pairing. 
um, you teamed up with a country uh, musician, uh, Jackson Emmer, and you did like country music with wine and looking at those mm-hmm. two things. And country music, I always kind of thought of as kind of this like monolithic genre that only had one style. And since moving to Texas, I've clearly learned there's a lot more to it than that. Um, yeah. And I've even found like styles of country music that I enjoy listening to, you know, uh, some sure. of the more like poppy kind of like trap influence stuff like Sam Hunt, or you've mm-hmm. got, um, you know, Sergio Simpson. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There, there's really cool things going on out there in country. If those guys were making wine, it would be pretty, pretty natural. <laughs> you know? It'd be pretty wild. What, what were some of the big takeaways for you from that tasting? I think seeing not really, you know, how you like can over prepare for a podcast show. Maybe this has happened to you, but in like music, it happens to me every podcast, every episode. I mean, it's the same thing with music, right? So, like, went into that that particular class, um, knowing the the performer really well. He's one of my best friends, and kind of knowing his songs more intimately than perhaps the audience, you know, got to know them. But um, the one thing that was just so shattering was the the blatant transparency in the songs. Like, mm-hmm. you know, as a single performer, there's nothing hiding. It's not like, you know, you make a mistake and your know, mistakes in music are great. And mistakes in wine often end up being great too with the right sort of, you know, direction. Um, and sort of seeing those two things in line, um, you know, live was really, really powerful. It was one of my favorite classes I ever, ever hosted. Yeah. Um, and I was like kind of in tears, like in certain moments in the class, I kind of, you know, choking on my own words, like trying to figure out how to describe these feelings. Mm-hmm. And I think the feeling ultimately was just the transparency yeah. in both in both products and seeing that in, you know, congruent. Um, but also seeing people's reaction to like, oh, this wine really does have that sort of like Carmen air, like I'm camping in the desert, it's spicy and uh, wild. And the song, you know, is like this toe tapping sort of rustic song that insinuates kind of like, the West without saying that. And so, so that comparison was really, really cool to see. Was that the highlight of the pairings? Uh, some Carmen air? I didn't pour a Carmen air actually. Uh, <laughs> I think I was just using that from a, from a kind of previous example. I think one of my favorite wines was, um, the, the, the beachy wines, um, the beachy Rosa. And I love that wine because it is sweet. It is a rosé. It's in a clear bottle. The label is insinuating like some kind of uncomfortable things for people. Um, speaking of like, there's an irreverent label approval, right? Yeah, I mean th- those those labels were not permitted in the United States when they first debuted, and they kind of had to rework some of the original uh, wines uh, to, to satiate the uh, the label approval. Um, so yeah, having that having that wine was is always kind of a, a revelation for people because it is sweet, but it does have a lot of structure and the, the label is suggestive. And, you know, that paired really well with this song that was doing the same thing. Um, I think there were, you know, some curse words in the song and it was like a little bit racier for a country song. And that, that one saw a really nice, you know, syzygy with that, with that song. Yeah, it's always fun when you hear a little bit of cursing in country. I mean, Taylor Swift's yeah. new album, I wouldn't, by any means classifies country. Um, it uh-huh. does have like a folksy vibe and it is the first album that she's dropped a uh, couple of F bombs on. So 
Nice. Yeah. Good for her. Have you listened to the album yet? Have you listened to Folklore? I have not, um, but I will immediately after signing off. Okay. (laughs) Um, The highlight, I think, is the song Betty. um, And then her duet with Justin Vernon from Bon Iver. Okay. um, She teamed up with uh, the producer for uh, The National uh, for most of the most of the songs so the production is very influenced by like the nationals kind of like morose indie indie rock sure so, yeah I, I can hear it i dig it yeah it's fun cool. it was cool uh is there anything else you want to you want to talk about within kind of like uh wine aesthetics that that we didn't touch on earlier well yeah i mean we're kind of talking about music and um there is there are so many similarities and it's like cheesy in a way to talk about like music and wine it's it's overdone and a lot of people do it as references but in terms of labels it's like you know music is a documentation of a time and place it's a documentation of a performance and that performance can be altered or fucked with however you want like you can tell when a song is more produced than one that's not and there's also that element with labels um you start seeing more you know glitchy sort of technical labels um, or like hand-drawn labels that took a tremendous amount of time or hand-drawn labels that changed every year, like Gudegau, um, or these sort of, uh, you know, collage type label like Martha Stoneman or like, um, uh, Alex Greghead's Candeli wines from New Zealand. Like those are very poppy labels, but they have this sort of textural aesthetic, much like a great live recording would. And if you alter or change that live recording, you're going to remove some of those intimate frequencies that are present in that room, for instance, um, or from that particular instrument or voice. And in a way, the, the aesthetics of a label have some, so much of placebo that you can kind of change the way a wine tastes. So I'd argue that, that music and label design is very, very similar. Um, yeah. Have you had that experience before where... You're like, all right, I'm going to buy this wine. I've never had it before, but I really love the label. And then you taste it and you're like, wow, I really maybe don't like this this wine as much as I thought I would, but <laughs> the label is so great. I, I think that happens, yeah, all the time. I think I can't recall the specific time, but when I was in Japan, I, I keep coming back to that trip, but there were a lot of Japanese wines that were you know, available and I knew nothing about any of them. But I wanted to try as many Japanese wines as I could because none of them are really getting imported to the United States. And I really just had to go off of like the label, which all of the grape varieties and regions, those were all in, you know, kanji. So I couldn't read it. So I really just had to be like, well, this one looks like it might be most up right. my alley. So and were you right? Back. Have, you, so. have you popped any? I popped a couple of them. So the majority that I've popped, I brought back like three bottles and the two that I've popped so far were both with, you know, crossed varieties. So Niagara was the grape in one of the pet nats that I brought back. It seems like sparkling wine pet nats made with, you know, crossed varieties, hybrids seems to be the go-to right now coming out of Japan, just because like in a lot of those regions where wine production is going on, like in Hokkaido, it's relatively humid. Um, so they need grapes that can kind of withstand that humidity. So those hybrids work really well. Um, and because the vines are all relatively young, Petnat is a reasonable cool. place to start. And, and I mean, the wines that I've had, I've loved, I've had, I had, I didn't bring any red wines back, but 
the like one or two reds that I tried while I were there were both super fantastic. They were both like carbonic, super fresh, super young, just easy drinking glue glue. So cool. Sounds a lot like like New York State and Michigan and Vermont. You know, you have so much humidity coming from the lakes and the those varietals are also grown pretty prolifically there. Yeah, what info do you have on the uh, Michigan wine scene? What can you pass along to all of us here in Texas? Michigan is really um first of all it's very beautiful. Um you know, the the peninsulas in the northern part of Michigan, not the not the upper peninsula but just shy kind of the tip of the the fingers, you know, you're a mitten, right? And you're at the tip. Um that's where the wine, that's where the majority of wine is being produced. And, um, you know, I think being more of like a lower, lower intervention guy, um, there's a lot of intervention involved in making wine in humid places, especially. So it's hard to find producers up there that are really truthfully doing that, but, um, there are a few and they're very good. Um, great Gamay, um, great Cab Franc, of course, great Riesling, Gravershaminer, um, Auxerwa, you know, the, similar varietals that you see in more uh, humid places in Germany. Um, you know, same, same parallel, right? Like, you know, it's the 45th parallel. So you're the same with Oregon and yeah, I mean, Michigan and New York are very, very up and coming. Um, Oregon, of course, mm-hmm. has kind of led the trail, um, the Oregon trail, literally, you know, in terms of uh, production and changing courses from, these stipend mm-hmm. varietals to other varietals. Um, Michigan and New York are doing that, which is really, really awesome. I'm really excited about those two states in particular. And um, if I were to, if we were to ever make wine, I, I, I would love to start in Michigan or, or New York, actually. I would be down to have some um, Michigan wine. If, if that ends up being in your future, yeah. put, me on the, put me on the waiting list for some bottles. I, I, I am in. Will do, yeah. man. After, yeah, after this call, I'm... I'm doing a, a hard pitch to a, a winery that we visited and we, we really dug the wines there. So Hell yeah. do, a, do a hard pitch, see if I can make something happen. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat, um, and sharing your knowledge and expertise and enthusiasm. Um, this has been a lot of fun. I look forward to whenever you're in Houston or whenever I'm in Austin so we can crack open a bottle together. Yeah, man. 100%. I'm there. Thanks for your time, Chris. This has been awesome. awesome. Yeah. Appreciate it. Take care, bud. If you want to learn more about Chris Kelly and his work with Vintel, you can check out the website VintelWine.com and follow on Instagram at VintelWine. Thanks for listening to another episode of By the Glass. Subscribe wherever you source your audio content, and we'll see you next week.